<laughs> well, friends, you knew it was bound to happen. Richard Rohr and I are in the same room. He has some headphones on. I have some headphones on. Here we go. Richard, welcome. So good to be with you again. Thank you. Every time Thank we you. get together. Sometimes yeah. I feel like we're either talking about the things that we care about most or we're laughing. <laughs> well, that's because you make me laugh. <laughs> and I need that. I'm too serious. I am. Have you? Were you serious growing up? Yeah, I was. Like uh, need to be right. Need to be. Yeah, what? it's the whole one stuff. Uh, you're a little adult. And I don't know if this was to please my German parents but I was super responsible, dutiful. They could, you know, leave me with the neighborhood kids and I'd shepherd them all to the school. And uh, I look back on it now, it's laughable how responsible I was. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so what else could I do but go off to a seminary? You know, those righteous voices felt now they had a forum uh, to be a priest, you know. And again, I've had a wonderful life. I'm in no position to complain. But uh, it is a humbling recognition to see that you probably did your greatest things for the wrong reason, you know, uh, <laughs> <laughs> for the wrong motivation. So that's how that, God uses us. You know? Yes. It yes. is. It is. So all my Robcast friends, I assume you all know and love Richard Rohr, but if you aren't, Richard Rohr has shaped my work as much as anybody. For many of us, he has put language to what we felt deepest in our bones. I know for Kristen and I, he's mm. our, he's the original village elder for oh, us. You make um, me so happy. Thank you. <laughs> and I don't even know, he has all sorts of books. Everything Belongs was the first one I read. Oh, but was it? Then oh. The Naked Now, and you have The Immortal Diamond. And folks, after you hear him, you're going to want to go get his books, and you're going to start wondering which one is the one I should start with, and I'm telling you, just start somewhere. I'm humbled by your trust. Thank you. So when I was thinking of what should we talk about, because I knew we could just turn it on and start talking, we'd be fine, but um, I was telling Richard before we turned, turned the recording on, Richard came up with these seven themes of an alternative alternative orthodoxy. And I think I came across these when I when you and I did an event together in New Mexico uh, okay. in 2014. Okay, that would make sense because our Conspire th- conferences yes. are going through those seven themes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I know for many of you who listen, uh, whether you grew up religious or not, you know what you don't want to be a part of, but you also know that there's some sort of sacred hum within you. Mm. Or the many people I know who say, the Jesus worldview they were handed doesn't work, but they find Jesus more compelling than ever. Yes, yes. And uh, Richard created these seven themes of an alternative orthodoxy, which to me are the best naming of what it does look like Mm. to be alive and to have a path Mm. and uh, even to have a Jesus-centered path. Mm -hmm. And especially everywhere I go, I know like you, people... They know what they're leaving, but what exactly are they headed into? Yes. And then especially so people who, they grew up with something that doesn't work for them anymore, but they're trying to figure out what to hand their kids. So uh, this episode of the Robcast is for all of you who are like, what do you hand your kids? I'm telling you, this is some of the best stuff ever. So these these seven themes, and we're going to go through them, and Richard is going to interact with them, mm-hmm. and this is going to be so much fun. 
And yes, we will talk about Trump. <laughs> <laughs> oh, not more than necessary, I hope. <laughs> okay, so the first one you call methodology, yep. and, it's, and, and as it's written, they're each one sentence, essentially. Yes. And the sentence is, Scripture, as validated by experience, and experience, as validated by tradition, are good scales for one's spiritual worldview. Okay, let me try it. I'll just say a few things about it. You know, I, I wrote these as sort of the, uh, the ideas that would form the curriculum of our living school. And so I had to make clear at the very beginning to the students what's going to be our approach to methodology. Yes. What weight do we give to Scripture? What weight do we give to experience? And what weight do we give to tradition? And we had to move beyond the old Catholic-Protestant thing, that we were the tradition people and Protestants were the Scripture people, which right. is re really uh, the typical dualistic food fight. It doesn't get you anywhere because it's only half true, you know? <laughs> yes, all of the sola scriptura. It's just the Bible alone. Where did you come up with that? Well, we came up with that. Oh, okay, so <laughs> there's experience. There was, there was some other things in play. <laughs> yeah, isn't that amazing that you got to state the obvious? But it's, we, we're calling it the tricycle that we ride on when I first teach the students. And the shocking thing, I hope it won't be shocking for you, is I really say the front wheel is experience. Because I think it wins out anyway, even though we yes. don't admit it. We don't admit it. Right. Your cultural, personal experience of how you receive reality is going to determine what you pay attention to in Scripture and what you don't pay attention to and what you pay attention to in the tradition of what you call bad tradition. So you got to reveal this bias that we're all operating with, and it seems God is willing to work with it. How else could God work except he's got to work through our experience? So <clears throat> by, you know, the law of three is a dynamic law. Uh, things keep moving. Any dualistic opposition is inherently a dead end because it just goes back and forth. Back and back forth, and, back and forever, forth. Forever, forever, you know? And you think because you yell louder or with greater authority, it's going to settle it. So uh, this has worked very well for us to really honor the scriptures, which for me as a Catholic is my real education. My love is the scripture. I think that's why... Some evangelicals trust me because they know that I don't take the scriptures lightly. Uh, but I'm also a Catholic, and in that, I recognize that there's a perennial tradition of interpretation beginning with the desert fathers and mothers, what we call the fathers of the church, the councils of the church, the, um, the saints and mystics of 2,000 years. <clears throat> and if, if you never find anything like your recent religious experience validated in either scripture or the tradition of those yeah. who tried to follow the scriptures, yeah. I think you have a good reason to question it, you yes. know, because uh, the spirit is one, as Ephesians says, and, uh, and we're, you're not going to find yourself uh, out on left field, you know, or right field for that matter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I've often, when people say, like, how do you know you're not way off in the deep weeds, mm -hmm. totally astray, whatever language people use, you've totally lost the plot. Uh, I often, my first thought is, because there's thousands of years of people saying the similar Same. thing, the thing that I just said may sound new to you, 
That's but right. I'm aware that That's I'm right. just putting perhaps That's... different metaphors yeah. or modern language on something that people have spoken yes. of. Yes. How could I trust that I'm right? Unless that's true, you know, who am I to assume that I, who came out of Kansas of all places, (laughs) that I, I would know the big picture, but I'm standing on the shoulders of saints and mystics and holy people who've gone ahead of me, right? who've struggled with the same scriptures. And I've, I've thought recently the awareness in American culture that, that, that Wall Street and the financial industry has had extraordinary exponential profit for a few while so many people are struggling just to put food on the table. That goes all the way back to the Hebrew prophets. Yep, there you go. We have, we have thousands of years that when you say, when you shake your fist and say, this system profits a few at the top and oppresses a number or keeps other people out of, out of the game... We're just in the tradition. Yes, yes that yeah. is actually a and very traditional <clears throat> statement. That's right. That's or I, uh, John Philip Newell, I oh, yes. recently had a conversation with him for the podcast, and he was talking about how second century Celtic spirituality mm. um, began with an affirmation of the divine feminine, the sacred feminine, mm-hmm. and an awareness that the good, good resides within people and a proper relationship with the soil. And we were laughing about how those are considered very progressive, yeah, progressive ideas today. that were second they century. To, isn't that beautiful? Yeah. Well. Um, I also was thinking about the number of people who were taught at some level, especially much more in the Protestant tradition. Well, I know it makes no sense and it's completely crazy, but it says it right here in First Timothy. Or, mm. do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. well, I know we don't question it because the Bible says it. Yeah. And that, that is often for people that was taught, well, this is the proper traditional view. Mm. It's like, no, actually the traditional view was that you read the scriptures in a conversation with your own tradition, with whatever the new thing is the Spirit are, is, is doing, that what you were taught is, well, we just read it and then do what it says, is not actually the tradition. Is not, yes. Isn't that ironic? <laughs> yes. And the people can't see that, you know? That experience dominated anyway. We paid attention to the scriptures that fit our agenda, and unless there's some ego work and some shadow work in your life, uh, you don't recognize that you're doing that. You really don't. Yeah. You're, you're trapped inside. The other thing, if I can add, one reason I feel I can put experience as the front wheel of the tricycle is we now have, thanks to modern psychology, shadow work, ego work, mm-hmm. spiritual direction. We have the tools to critique experience you know, that yes. I don't think the Desert Fathers had so much. Do you understand? And now we, the reason we can trust it is precisely because we can also critique it. Yeah. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh huh. And I'm interested. Um, I'm fascinated with how much, how many times in my own experience, very rigid fundamentalist leaders that I've interacted with came from extraordinarily broken home lives and that this incredible white knuckled gripping to these statements of beliefs, doctrines and dogmas that, that the theology was all personal. It came from a shattered foundationless violent upbringing and found something Right. stable and then said well it's just because it's absolute truth as revealed to us by Jesus or whatever 
but it was so deeply informed by a need to find something yeah. The need for order, certitude, and a predictable family is yes. so deep yes. that it overrides everything else. And you said it very well. Then I call it objective truth, when in fact it's very subjective. Truth. Very yeah. subjective. <laughs> yes. yeah. I came from yeah. a shattered tribe, and so patrolling the borders of who's in and who's out becomes incredibly important. A way of life. A way of life. Because yeah. <sighs> I would say my experience matches that very much. Incredible. Once you hear the personal story. Yes. It gives you more sympathy for the person, right. more compassion for the person, but it also gives you a way of understanding, oh, that's why he so needs to be certain. Because yes. the first 15 years of his life, there was no certitude about yeah. anything. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that's that was number one. Number one. Okay. Just getting warmed up. Because <laughs> that was one methodology. Okay, two, foundation. And this one, the first time... When you uh, when you asked me to come speak with you at that, that event was we did together, that was for number two, wasn't that it? This sentence wow. was, you said, talk about this. Okay. And I remember thinking, a Richard Rohr event, the description of the event has more content in it <laughs> than it. some entire <laughs> events. <laughs> you said that at the conference, oh, I remember. I? Oh, the brochure. <laughs> has, <laughs> the, bo the brochure is more profound. Okay, so this one, and ladies and gentlemen, just fasten your seatbelts because this one is unbelievable. Okay, here we go. If God is Trinity and Jesus is the face of God, then it is a benevolent universe. God is not someone to be afraid of, but is the ground of being and is on our side. side. Come Ooh. on. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to read that once more just because if you're not hearing Beethoven in the background, I don't know what's happening. <laughs> if God is Trinity and Jesus is the face of God, then it is a benevolent universe. You know, I, I'm really prepared. I just finished my book on the Trinity. What's it and, called? Uh, the Divine Dance. Oh, perichoresis. Perichoresis, of course. Yeah, oh. yeah. Uh, and William Paul Young, the author of The Shack, is going to write the foreword to it. And, of course, you know, he's done more to bring the Trinity yes. home to, yes. to our world than anybody else. So I, I'm so honored. We're going to do a major conference this very weekend, next year, on Trinity. So we let me start with that. Okay, Go I'll ahead. start with that, yeah. because I think for many people. Uh, I can't overstate this. I really mean it. I think the normal Christian, it's going to sound shocking. I don't, I'm not trying to be shocking. The normal Christian image of God is still pagan. Yeah. It's, it's still Zeus, yeah. Deus. Yep. This man with a white beard sitting on a throne who is now Jesus, which completely... He's the judge of history, so you know, understand. This is non-Trinitarian theology. Correct. Karl Rahner, the German Jesuit, who is such an expert at our Second Vatican Council, he said, uh, we could drop the doctrine of the Trinity tomorrow, and 98% of Christian practice and devotion would remain untouched yep. and unchanged. Uh, and it, none of us, in, I don't know any, except Unitarians, I don't know any Christian denomination that denies the Trinity. Even though you know the word is not in the Bible, it took us three centuries to process that, and then we came up with perichoresis, the God is a circle dance. Perichoresis uh, from the word, where we get the word 
choreography. Choreography. Perry meaning around, around. so to dance to around. Dance around. Yeah. So the divine is a community of love in which yeah. the the members, the persons of the divine move and encircle each other in loving, giving generosity Perfect. and service. Yeah. And so the reason if I can jump in here. Please. For many people, I think when you talk about like a pagan understanding is a very static thing. Is a monarch on a throne. Somebody somewhere yeah. in a cloud who gets involved every once in a well, while. That's what I said last and night. By the yeah. way, the Holocaust would have been nice. Mm-hmm. Um, as opposed to a community of endless giving, serving, love, a dance or a flow that you enter into. That's the word I use a lot. So there is a difference between do you... Do you believe or not versus would you like to enter into a flow? There you go. My God, we're from the same mother. That's That's just what I said last night. And how it excites people. And it's the essence of orthodoxy. I mean, this is not... Well, I told him, I said, if I use the word circle dance... Uh, you would think I was some new ager from California. Forgive me. And this was used by, you know, the de- the not the Desert Fathers, but the early fathers. Church Fathers, right. Church. This yes, was as, yes. as orthodox, mainstream, yeah. central to the Jesus tradition was exactly. there is a divine dance. I think about all of my friends who have no religious background, and yet when you ask them about their greatest moments of joy, peace, connection, mm-hmm. harmony in life, generally articulate some form of, I felt like I was in the midst of something bigger than myself. Uh, like I was caught good. up in something. Yep, yep. Like uh-huh. there was a movement yeah. that I could join or not join. Generosity is joining it. Mm. Stinginess and greed is not joining it. Um, I also love, I sometimes think when Jesus endlessly, the John 14, I am the way, the truth, mm. and the life, uh, gets misquoted. I think what Jesus is saying is, I actually think the best way to read it is, I'm showing you what the dance looks like. Oh, very good. Yes, uh, this is the big pattern. Yes. But it doesn't mean belonging to the right tribe, which right. is how we interpret it. Right. Exactly. When you move no. from the center to stand in solidarity with those on the edges, mm. you're entering into the dance. Yes. When you uh, are honest about all the darkness within you, you let the light shine in there and you do your own interior work. You are entering into the dance. Yes, yes. When you see that you are here to give yourself to that which is larger than yourself, you are entering into the dance. Any lending, I gave a whole bunch of examples last night, but, you know, a research scholar who's giving years of his life because he cares about a certain disease. That's yes, the flow. Absolutely. That's, that's the flow. And, and he doesn't even need to be necessarily, I'd, I'd love it if he could say Jesus is Lord, but he's showing the lordship of Jesus by his caring for the body of Christ without using that vocabulary. Right. The vocabulary is not the important thing. It's the energy. It's the flow. And the, par- the participation, yeah. the flesh yeah. and blood yeah. participation. Now, uh, we were talking about this one time. Good Lord, I'm enjoying this. Um, we were talking about this one time, and you were talking about how Jesus is not God. Yes, that, that shocks that people. For so many people, well, you believe Jesus is God. Somehow that mm. becomes central to being mm. whatever. But that that is not actually true to the Christian tradition. Yeah, this sounds shocking. Now, no, don't run away. I actually do believe in oh, the good divinity Lord. of Christ. People who listen to this podcast, we've been in this business for a while. <laughs> okay, yeah, Unshockable. that's true. Um, when we jump too quickly to proclaim Jesus as God, we miss the real revelation that he came forth from God to take on humanity 
which means Jesus, the Christ is God, if I want to be technical, all right? But Jesus is a third something, which is the coherence, the putting together of total God and total man. There's, that's unique. Now, the reason I would hold on to the divinity of Christ as essential, because if we can't put it together in him, we can't put it together in ourselves. In ourselves. Yeah. It's the same complexus. It's the same coming together. So I believe this is why the tradition rightly insisted Jesus is God. But here's the trouble. We made him into an exclusive savior instead of an inclusive savior. Come that, on. Yeah, that he yes. yeah, yeah. That he is the archetype, the corporate personality, what Paul calls the the pledge, the guarantee, the promise, and we're the adopted sons and daughters. But see, adoptionism, which was a word used by Paul, also the word inheritance theology, that uh, it took off for a while in the first centuries. But then the justification by faith thing took over, and it all became a contest, you know, yeah. of who's justified in the right way. And I really agree with N.T. Wright that, that what we've, another dualistic argument between faith and good works is a bogus yes. interpretation of Paul. <laughs> That's not Paul's great idea. Paul's great idea is that the new temple is the human person. The new temple is the human person. You know? Right, right, and right. And that, now, you just go back. I've told that to groups, and I say, you go back and read Paul, and you'll see it's everywhere. Yes. But no one told you to pay attention to that, you see. Right, <laughs> and and also, the uh, and those of you who are listening who are like, this all sounds very technical and complicated, or what's the problem? Here's why it's so huge, is the story huge. is about what's possible for you and I right now. That's right. So when Jesus says things like, you can do greater things than these, mm -hmm. the reason why the divine and the human in the same place in Christ is such a big idea yeah. is not so that we can argue about things 2,000 years ago, but so that you can wake up to that which is possible for us as human beings right now. Excellent. Um, yeah, we think the same. Well, let me say one other thing on that one quote, the benevolent universe. I love that phrase yes. when it first came to mind. When you wrote these, were you like, I am on fire today? <laughs> <laughs> they did come quickly, yeah. Um, but that was, what, six, seven years ago. Um, you know, I said last night, if the gospel is not somehow proclaiming a cosmic hope for history, for society, yeah. for the planet... What we're finding, and I know you'd experience, it's very hard to heal individual people when the whole thing is going to hell in a handbasket. Right, right. When, when the late great planet Earth is the great Christian selling book, which ends history with, you know, with Armageddon and Apocalypse it's Now. tragic, bloody, brutal, yeah. right. We've, we've missed, I mean this, we've missed the message of Easter. We've missed the message of the resurrection. That, that if Jesus the is the final chapter of history revealed to humanity to give it hope, that's what we're singing about this time of year. We actually didn't believe that. It all became a weighing and measuring of who's worthy and who isn't worthy, who's in and who's out. So uh, it isn't a benevolent universe. For most Christians, it's a scary universe. God is not Trinity. God is a threatening deity 
who's making a list, checking it twice, right. going to find out who's naughty or nice. When I said that to the crowd last night, I, the, the whole church just nodded heads. Yeah. I said, do you realize the Christian revolution hasn't taken place yet? You know, We still have a pagan notion of God throwing down thunderbolts from a throne. Right. But not this infinite flow of infinite love between three persons into whom we are taken. I mean, the early, uh, not uh, it wasn't the Desert Fathers; it was shortly after. Uh, writers will will go so far as to say that creation and we are the fourth person of the Blessed Trinity. God has come forth in Jesus to take us back with him. Where I am going, you also must go. <laughs> they believe that. Huh? And we were taken into that flow as all of creation is. But if there isn't a historical, social, corporate understanding of salvation. Right. The whole thing being put back together. <sighs> It, I think this is our massive disillusionment with Christianity. Yeah. We're trying to tell individual people to be hopeful while we're damning everything in sight as going to hell. You know, it's it doesn't yes. work. It just it, yes. you can't yes. live. You live in constant insecurity, constant fear of this threatening God. Right. And so then the good news apparently is how you as an individual can get saved from all of your awfulness, all which is totally different from hey. Yeah. The whole thing That's right. That's right. is being healed. Would you like to be a part of that? There you go. There you go. Come that's on. the gospel. And so, yeah. So then you are invited into the thing that's happening in the whole thing. You got it. Yeah. That's, now that... See, that's hope for the world. Yeah, now that's you can sing about I, that. I, I, I really think the reason we are creating so many mentally ill people today, and we all know it's true, mm -hmm. the high amount of people who simply aren't emotionally, mentally healthy... Uh, when you live in kind of this desperate, unsafe, non-benevolent universe, where even God isn't on your side, healing is rare. And I say this after giving retreats worldwide for 46 years, you know, where people would be all turned on by this wonderful retreat, and then you'd come back even a few months later and you realize most of it didn't take because they fell uh, right back into yes. American consumerism, American success agenda, American whatever. And because, you know, was it Peter Drucker who said in his book on management, I, I don't know that I'll have the quote perfectly said, but uh, culture eats ideology for lunch. I don't know if you've Oh, heard. I haven't heard that. Yeah. That's yeah, that culture always wins. Yeah. And when you present the gospel, not as a transformative life message, but as an ideology of belief, culture wins every time. When, uh, you know, I go to Switzerland and God looks like a banker. I go to Germany, God looks like a policeman. I go to America, God looks like a businessman. It's That's maybe a little of a caricature, no, but it's not yeah. far from the truth. It yeah. really isn't. Yeah. This helps me understand because I'm doing this tour now and spend a whole day in a different city interacting with mm -hmm. people over the past few months. And what strikes me is how many people respond to what I'm saying and writing and, and talk about on these podcasts. But their questions often are, I'm totally alive. This is, yes, yes, yes. yes. But I have to go live in a dominant world business family, extended family neighborhood 
that is in such despair and yeah, yeah. such brokenness. Um, oh my goodness! Yeah, it's okay. heartbreaking. Well, look, good. That's enough comment on two, though. Well, jump ahead we'll be to three. We could talk on it forever. <laughs> okay, number three, frame. Frame. And this one, just I just want to get up and give the high five, universe. Here's how it reads. <laughs> there is only one reality. Only one. Any final distinction between natural and supernatural, sacred and profane, is a bogus one. Yeah. I love that you use the word bogus, bogus. by the way. <laughs> it's... Um... There's only one reality. Any final distinction between natural and supernatural or sacred and profane is a bogus one. You know, philosophically, theologically, you would have thought that the three monotheistic religions would have come to that very naturally. Yes. If there's one God, there's one reality. Right. There's one center. So if you discover it in yeah. science, fair game. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Embrace it, affirm it, celebrate it. If it's true, then we're all going to come at that one truth from different angles. Yes. And yet we're threatened threatened when a hindu says something that sounds like us oh that can't be true it came from a hindu well you know all the story of the old elephant all of us touching it you know uh that's clearly the case i don't even need to work hard to prove that if reality is one if god is one and we all came forth from the one creator then everything and this is very franciscan spirituality bears the divine DNA. Everything St. Bonaventure said bears the divine imprint, fingerprint, and footprint. And and no exceptions. No exceptions. You know? yes. Just because they were born in Africa or Asia, who else created them? Right. <laughs> uh, uh, you, this is your <laughs> theology. There's one creator of all the earth. Well, but he really created white people from North America and Europe first. <laughs> and the whole thing just falls apart. I mean, I, I've it's... heard people talk about, you know, well, I'm just really serious about God's truth. And I always just, <laughs> as opposed to what other kind. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If it's true, it's true, it's true, it's true. <laughs> and uh, only the vocabulary changes or the level of perception. Um, can you just make a comment sure. between natural and supernatural? Yeah. You know, in in... Catholic theology, we said, grace does not compete with nature. Grace builds on nature because it's inherent to nature. If we bear the divine DNA, if we are adopted sons and daughters of God, as Paul says in two or three places, then uh, supernatural, uh, like grace is an additive to human nature, really doesn't fit. Right. It's planted within us. Now, that's our theology, the Holy Spirit. The indwelling presence is the inner knower, the inner holder, placeholder. The, now, our word for that was the, the soul, in great part. Uh, once you get your knowledge of the indwelling clear, and I think it's you know, the touchstone of orthodoxy. The presence of the divine in every human being. And in all of creation. In all of creation. (laughs) Everything has a soul to it, you know? I know some people don't like you to say that. And I say, why wouldn't you want me to say that? Why wouldn't you want your dog to have a soul, an essence, a core? Uh, uh, Or why wouldn't that, that tree seems to know who it is and delights in being a tree that tells me it has soul. Uh, maybe it's not a human soul. I'm not calling it a human soul. 
But um, we've got to replant grace from the first chapter of Genesis or second, God created it and it was good, right? We've got to begin with original blessing. Yes. And here's where you good Protestants, you thought you were reforming the Catholics, <laughs> but you really didn't. You took some of our worst theology, <laughs> like, like original sin. You know, that isn't in the Bible. It's original blessing that's in the Bible. Correct. And our, our worst stuff, you, you just replicated. It's really shocking to us as Catholics. Those guys tried to reform us, and I wish they really would have, but they didn't. In case after case after case, and this would be the grand beginning mistake. You know, When you start with a problem, you know, when you emphasize yes. the fly in the ointment instead of the ointment itself, you can't dig yourself out of the hole. Right. It's, it's such a deep hole. You know, total depravity? Give me a break. Right, <laughs> right. Oh, my God. We, we as Franciscans, forgive me, I hope I'm not offending anybody, but we would... Unoffendable. We would use that uh. as just... That's the counter... Right. To Franciscanism. Right. The absolute right. counter. Any knowledge of total deprav depravity and only a few are going to be saved. It, there's no hope for history. Right. There's no hope for the world. There's no hope. There's no hope. <laughs> there's not much love either, by yeah. the way. There's certainly no knowledge of a Trinitarian God, which is infinite outpouring that never stops. Huh? Yeah, it's. It, uh, I always talk about how it's starting the story... On chapter three instead of chapter one. Oh, yeah, yeah. You're, if you start from the wrong place, then the story will... Perfect. We will be Perfect. lost. You got it. Mm -hmm. It also strikes me how you talk about the distinction between supernatural and natural and how many people are like, do you believe in miracles or not? And what they mean by that is, do you think that there are interruptions in, yeah, the God or of... aberrations in which something happens that there is no precedent for that can't be explained? Mm -hmm. But I... Uh, have you ever heard an explanation for how the Earth and the solar system and universe came to be that you thought, oh, that satisfies my curiosity? Uh, yeah, very good. The, I mean, there's no precedence for any of it. Any oh, 13. of it. Any billion, of it. 13.8 billion years ago, there was a Big Bang that arose from a singularity. Mm. Oh, great. Got it. <laughs> Why do we stay attached to planet Earth? Gravity. Yeah. Oh, good. So helpful. <laughs> the, the Einstein quote, really, you know it. You know, yes. It's not one thing is a miracle. The whole dang thing yes. is miraculous. Yeah. You as a mother would appreciate this, Kristen. Uh, you know, I watched an hour show on what happens in a woman's body from the moment of conception. I mean, it's something like 55 complex processes have to happen to completely reconstruct a woman's body for a nine-month period to bring a child into the world. You just want to weep. Yes. Weep at the miraculous character of every birth. So, yeah, we can't see God as the God of the gaps who comes in now and then, but he's largely an idle spectator. Let's be honest. Who's somewhere else. Who's somewhere this else. This place is able to continue on just fine, uh -huh. and then you're left having to make very lame arguments about whether or not something, somebody somewhere God else exists or not. Get in. As opposed no, to beginning no. with, this place continues to sustain itself and move forward. Yeah. So let's start there with very good. reality itself. That grace has to be inherent to creation. I mean, I'm going to certainly offend some people with this, but I mean it. And I say it in the Trinity book. 
Christians, if they would have understood Trinity and Incarnation, should have been in the front line of believing in evolution. Absolutely. The front line. Absolutely. (laughs) The first to go, hey, by the way, this thing has been evolving and adapting for a long time now. How great is that? But we had an idea of extrinsic grace that came in for good people now and then, occasionally. Uh, But you couldn't rely upon it. You couldn't draw upon it. That grace was inherent, you see. It changes everything once you have the indwelling spirit planted in our hearts. Oh, uh, it's just, it's, such, so it's a benevolent good. universe. Yes. Okay, keep moving. Thank you for Seriously, understanding. <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, ecum- ecumenism, number four. Everything belongs... And no one needs to be scapegoated or excluded. Evil and illusion only need to be named and exposed truthfully, and they die in exposure to the light. To the light, yeah. That's what we called the Franciscan approach to prophecy, which we called soft prophecy. You don't harangue people, you don't shame people, you don't put, you just do it better. You just. Reveal Ah. the light. You just go live a a simple, happy life yourself. And that's your critique of a complex, unhappy life. You don't need to shame people. But uh, Mm. my first book on contemplation was called Everything Belongs. And we used it in that phrase. Don't even get me started. Yeah. Uh, And for many years, it was my best-selling book. And I always said... The reason I thought it sold so well is people love that title. It's like you intuitively know, well, if it's here, if God is allowing it to persist in being, then somehow, on some level, it must belong. (laughs) And it's my job to find out why and how and to celebrate its existence. That doesn't mean you allow all evil to take course. But it does mean that you get, you're willing to recognize it as evil and work with it. Uh, so that's what I was trying to say in that particular alternative orthodoxy. It's, uh, it's a different approach to dealing with evil. And I call God in one, one of the other of my books, the Great Allower, capital G, capital A, the Great Allower. You can't deny, and it makes us damn angry that God is allowing an awful lot of stuff yeah. that we don't like. And I don't. I can't wait to ask God, why does God allow young girls to be trafficked? Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, dang it, this just shouldn't be, you know? But there's some mystery, so there's some chemistry to the presence of evil in the world that God sees as allowable. My logical mind does not understand that and does not agree with that. But when my more contemplative mind can say, everything belongs, okay, how do I deal with this? How do I put boundaries around this or protect people from this? Now that's my, my life task. Not to exclude it, which is the the name we weren't going to mention, the political approach of some of our present politicians. Yes. Right? Kill it, exclude it. That's 
That's what Walter Wink would call the myth of redemptive violence. Right, right. And Jesus came to reveal to us the myth of redemptive suffering. And again, I'd say we're still, and you know this, in the kindergarten of Christianity, that most Christians still buy the myth of redemptive violence. I use the word scapegoat there. You bomb us, then we bomb you. We bomb. And that the world is made better through a corresponding act of vengeance, violence, or revenge. And we've moved to the same level of moral development at that moment. That Why can't people see that, you know? I believe Jesus became the scapegoat to reveal the lie of scapegoating. Yes. (laughs) And Rene Girard says that the scapegoat mechanism, I'm sure you've heard this, is the primary principle for the formation of group and culture. You don't have to know what you're for. You just have to know who you're against, you know? who doesn't belong, oh, my you know, Lord, uh, so who, who are the bad guys. So, you know, like, I'll be honest, as a Catholic, you know, uh, up to the Vatican II, that was our great reforming council in the early 60s, we... We weren't anti-Protestant. We just sort of ignored you as massive sea of heretics who left <laughs> us in the 16th century. And what a shame, you know. But you, were, you weren't, we didn't criticize you. We just sort of pitied you. Do you understand? <laughs> but Poor kids. Look at those pathetic the kids. kids who just out there left the mother in the church, woods. you know. Why would you take them seriously, you know? <laughs> Now, we could believe that as long as we, we never knew a Protestant. I went to Catholic schools till my whole life, you know, lived in a little Catholic enclave. But here's my point. Up to the early 60s, Catholicism held together really well. I mean, we were a club. We were a group. We knew who we were. We had our feast days and our saints and our, you know, liturgies and all the rest. Then when the council tells us, well, you know, the Protestants really are brothers and sisters in Christ, <laughs> and let's get over this need to compete with them or fight them or defeat them. Let's work with them. Since the early 1960s, the numbers of Catholics have been decreasing, decreasing, decreasing. Because we worked well because you were wrong. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. We, yeah. Once you weren't wrong, and even it changed our whole missionary venture, you know. Once we couldn't assume that all the people in Africa were going to hell, but in fact they were objectively children of God, we lost the power of the scapegoat mechanism. You follow me? Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So and, so Rene Girard's principle is true. You're held together by thinking you're superior to someone else or better than or yeah. You're right and they're wrong. Truer writer. So whether it's Protestants, uh Muslims, immigrants, mm-hmm. media, pick the group. Fundamentalists, Doesn't matter. liberals, the elite, those on the coasts. Those in the Midwest, though, whoever it is. It's always got to be a group. Got to be. We get it. They don't. Once you see this, you can never stop seeing it. It's uh, obvious. It's hidden in plain sight. Yeah. We don't actually know what we're for. We're no. bonded because we just know we're not them. We know we're not them. This, is, this doesn't take a lot of proof. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's everywhere all the time. So to gather groups around pure love, to just have a liturgy like they did beautifully here yesterday, that just celebrated the presence, it's much harder to gather a group around positive motivation. Listen, you're going to love this. I, uh, I had a, in my uh, living school class in January a neuroscientist who's also a therapist. You can quote this, and I'm sure you will. He said, we can now prove in neuroscience that anything negative, fearful, or hateful, the mind attaches to like Velcro. Got it. Really? And you can feed it for days and weeks and months. But here's the opposite except for sevens on the Enneagram. All the rest of us, anything positive, happy, joyous, loving, grateful, those are like Teflon. And he said, and I, he, I can show you the neuroscience for this. He said, if you have a grateful, positive, isn't that beautiful moment, you have to savor it for a minimum of 15 seconds or it does not imprint on the brain. And negativity prints instantly. Instantly, yes. Yeah, isn't that fascinating? Kristen's talked about that before. That's Velcro. Positivity is Teflon. And that's why you can walk through the circus or the carnival. Isn't that fun? Isn't that fun? Isn't that fun? But you actually leave unchanged. Because you've got to sit and savor. Isn't that little child's face delighting in that clown isn't that beautiful you know and if you don't savor joy it does not stay and there's a neurological component to that's what he claimed he sent me the papers on it i i haven't read them yet they're too complex so a a daily practice things you listen to music beautiful art these things you you put in your life because you intuitively know you need them you have to consciously, deliberately, intentionally love them. That's contemplation, by the way. That's contemplation. Yes. To, to sit there with it and to take it in. And then it imprints a minimum of 15 seconds. Isn't that amazing? Use that all you want. It's, it's helping me teach contemplation because people just nod in recognition. Yes. Why do I hold on to a resentment for five years? Oh. And looking in my little baby's eyes, which gives me such delight, I don't let that change me, but I let people who've hurt me change me. Yeah. Oh. It's a shame. It's demonic almost. I have to ask God about that too. You got 100 emails that day and 99 were great. One of them was annoying and that's the one you're laying in bed yes. that night yes. thinking about the one. Instead of laying in bed going, oh my word, that email was awesome, and that email was awesome. It's the one that your brain is like... I'm sorry to hear that you're that way, too. I, as a one, am that way. But I thought sevens wouldn't be. Darn it. (laughs) Uh, By the way, Richard is referring to the Enneagram, which is a sort of... Another alternative orthodoxy. (laughs) uh, We should do another... Someday we'll do a podcast about the Enneagram. Enneagram. Um, But E-N-N-E-A-G-R-A-M, there are nine sort of... Personality, personality drives, types. types. Went back to the Desert Fathers. This yeah. is not pagan. Yeah, this is a, an ancient Orthodox way of understanding right. how humans move in health and unhealth. It was a tool for spiritual directors. 
founded by Evagrius Ponticus, who had eight passions. He was a Syrian deacon who died in 399. So don't say this is pagan. It started. (laughs) But again, especially Protestants don't tend to know much about the first thousand years. Right, right, right. So they call all kind of things pagan that aren't. (laughs) Right. And the Enneagram, when you sort of understand how you tend to move in the world, and especially if you're in a significant relationship or a marriage, it can be unbelievably illuminating, let alone with your kids, let alone working with a team of people or a business or... Mm -hmm. uh, It's allowed me to save I don't know how many marriages. Yes. I mean that. Yes. When he's not doing that personally to get you, that's who he is, and that's who she is. And if you can't love that... Right. Don't get married. And uh, (laughs) I happen to be a seven of the nine types. Richard is a one, and sevens are excessively optimistic. And generally, you have enthusiasts. We we just want if 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 seven was good, let me have eight. If eleven was good, I have fourteen. Just more. Anyway, obviously, as you can probably guess, Richard, the definitive book on this. No, no, mine isn't. One of the better books on this. Okay. Is written by Richard Rohr on the Enneagram, E N N E A G R A M, spelling it again for you. Now, number five. Yep. This one is just. This one's called Transformation. The separate self is the problem, whereas most religion and most people make the shadow self the problem. This leads to denying, pretending, and projecting instead of real transformation into the divine. You got it. Uh, we even though Jesus told us you have to lose yourself to find yourself, Christianity in general has not done a real good job in exposing the ego. There's a good meaning to ego. I fully yeah. own that and recognize that. But a kind of radical narcissism or self-centeredness that, in my opinion, has characterized bishops and priests and clergy. In fact, there was a study a few years ago. The the single, I'm sorry to have to say this, I'm one of them, the single most narcissistic group was clergy. When you oh, really? Yes. When you walk around thinking you speak for God, everybody's kissing up to you, in our oh, case, Father, wow. Father, Father. Yeah. You're wearing, in our case, we're worse at it than you are, vestments that make you special. Well, pretty soon the ego just feels at home there. I'm pretty special. Do you understand? Huh? So we really haven't done a good job in defeating the ego. We put all of our energy on the shadow self. When in fact, in my opinion, and I say this as a confessor and as a spiritual director, God uses your shadow to bring you to himself. <laughs> uh, so when I say the separate self is the problem, not the wounded self. Your wounds are your glory, as some of our mystics said. That, that's the hole in the soul through which God gets in. But John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. The, the branch cut off from the vine is useless. I think that's my meditation today online. Uh, so it came to mind. But... Uh, This isn't Buddhism. This is Christianity. The separate self is the problem. That you dare not define yourself separate from the body of Christ. The hand cannot say to the foot, I do not need you. The ear cannot say to the eye, I do not need you. So that's our own understanding of unity. That we are more one than many. 
the more important thing is to remain connected. Whereas what we did is we said the real important thing was to be correct. Privately correct. When we're saved by being part of the body, only the whole body of Christ can bear the weight of glory and the burden of sin. When I put the burden of sin on you, you should feel damn guilty because you're sinful. All that does is defeat people. But when we know that we together bear it. are imperfect and we can carry that cross, you carry a bit of it, I carry a bit of it, you carry a bit of it. And the same with the weight of glory, that I can't walk around thinking my gift and you have a wonderful gift that this is due to me or I'm more intelligent or I'm more holy. I just know that isn't true in my case. Do you understand? I know God uses me and it's precisely by remaining on the vine, connected to him consciously as much as I can and connected to the body of Christ, my neighbors, fellow Christians or fellow anybody. That's a whole different scenario of salvation, to remain connected instead of correct. It's, it's a different game. So if somebody says to you, the difference between shadow self and separate self. Okay. Shadow self is wounds, doubts, fears, mistakes, things you regret. Think, Temperamental are, limitations. Those yeah. all <laughs> lurk within you. Yep, yeah, yeah. And they're a part of you, and they... Everything belongs. Mm. They belong. And those are actually the places where you are most <coughs> viscerally in touch with grace. With grace. Perfect. And so Potentially. We, Not all people use them to make that contact, but that's, I think, God's plan. That there is all of this that resides within you, and if you don't let it all belong yes. and own it, yeah. then you end up projecting it onto others. Onto others. The only problem with the shadow is when you you refuse to admit that it's true. <laughs> That's why ah. hum, humility and honesty are the only real necessities on the spiritual journey. But if you're yet lacking humility and honesty, you will be caught by your shadow. Yeah. You'll be destroyed. Which is by the power your of the recovery movement is you sit in Very the room good. with people Very and good. you name the shadow They're and you just better. let it be what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, Whereas we were trained to repress and deny the shadow, to right. look proper, to right. look nice, to look Christian, whatever that meant, uh, but it had often little to do with Christ. Right. The, the risen Christ shows his wounds, uh, and, and they have become his glory. And yeah. the very point of the wound is the point of the glory. That's it. That's what. That's why he says to Thomas, "Put your finger here." You yeah. Know? yeah, that's right. And so you see the person who has struggled in a particular area, and there's the moment of epiphany when they realize yes. that this is now. Sometimes it's often when they meet somebody else who has a similar mm-hmm. wound, and they say, "Oh, me too." Yeah. And all of a sudden, the thing that yeah. was kept down there somewhere, avoid it, ignore it, becomes the very place of. <gasps> That to Healing. me is so obvious. <laughs> you know, it's so obvious <laughs> that those are the people who break through yes. and heal others. Yes. Henry Nowen coined that term, the wounded healer. The wounded healer. And I knew him personally. We were friends. And the reason he could write that book is because he was a wounded man mm-hmm. and he knew it. 
He never denied it, you know. And he knew that by facing his own woundedness, he was a healer for other people. I think that's the only kind of healer there is. Yeah. So, so shadow, separate self is going, going it on your own. Yeah, yeah. The ego wants two things. The ego wants to feel separate and superior. Look at all the ways oh. the young person will try to define by their tattoo or their clothing or their hairdo. I'm special. I'm not like you, you know, emphasizing our difference. Yeah. You see, the truly fully transformed people, person does not need to define themselves as different or special because they got their special jolt from God. I know I'm a beloved son. Once I know I'm a beloved son, I don't need to win anybody else's approval. I'll enjoy it if they like me. Who wouldn't? But I'm not going to sell my soul for it because I don't need to. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It creates a different kind of person. Okay, next one. So good. Okay, here we go. Two more. All right, two more. Good Lord, ladies and gentlemen, we're rounding the bend. Home stretch. Number six, process. Process. The path of descent. Oh, yes. Is the path of transformation. Darkness, failure, relapse, death, and woundedness are our primary teachers rather than ideas or doctrines. <laughs> I almost can't finish that sentence because it's so good. It's Darkness, failure, relapse, death, and woundedness are our primary teachers rather than ideas or doctrines. You know, uh, I gave a talk somewhere in the last year, and I don't know how this phrase came to mind, but I said, elevator theology was never the gospel. This business of going up. It's the exact opposite movement of Philippians 2. I, Jesus the, emptied, or the right. Christ emptied himself. Made himself like a so, servant. So, so we have God in Jesus, or in Christ, becoming Jesus, the human, ordinary one who walked amongst us for 30 years. And then he creates a church. I don't think he created it, but we did that tried to climb back up the very stairs he came down. Uh, it's all been elevator theology, except for those rare hermits and mystics and saints and transformed people, invariably wounded people, invariably people who suffered a great deal, you know, and couldn't play the elevator escalator game. Those of us who could play it, who were nice and white and comfortable and so forth, we, we, you know, gunned it for all it was worth. It was all about achieving perfection, uh, climbing mm. up the ladder of, of whatever. And I know my early Catholic training, it, that's what it all was. And that's why when Luther said, you Catholics are into good works, he was at least half right. It was all about making yourself perfect and holy by your definition, of course, of perfect and holy. But it got us nowhere. Because what you do, once you go down that road, maybe you can pull it off in your young, heroic years. But eventually you recognize you're denying an awful lot. You're projecting an awful lot of your shadow or your woundedness onto other people 
You don't like to be around handicapped people or poor people or smelly people. Or there's all your your woundedness has been is being hated and avoided and rejected through other people. Once you start seeing that little by little, you have to stop the game of denial and recognizing that is me. <laughs> and my neighbor is not different than me. He bears my wounds, I bear his. But that's, <clears throat> that's a high level of seeing. I don't know that, to be perfectly honest, you know my book on the two halves of life, Falling Upward. I don't think most people get to that. They're capable of that mm. till the second half of life. It's, we, we first have to create our container, our yeah. ego identity, our ego boundaries, our ego structure, and we largely do in that by avoiding the dark side. That's the only way you can do it. Really is. You you, you have kids. You, you can't yeah. tell a little teenager subtle things about their shadow or they can't hear it. <laughs> right, right, right. Their container isn't st strong enough yet. Ah. But eventually, God gives you the courage and the humility and the honesty. It's more in your 40s where it starts. Now, uh, people who have had to face suffering early people who were rejected or betrayed mm -hmm. or a, mm -hmm. a person who had to not deny their sexual identity or whatever it might be they often get there quicker not always sometimes they just become bitter understandably but uh sometimes they know you know like i had a gay man come to me recently you know he said i knew as a little six-year-old boy, that the world is not the way everybody thinks it is. Everybody thinks it's heterosexual, male, female. And already as a little boy, I knew I was both. Oh, you know? wow. Can you imagine when you know that inside your own body, it isn't true, but I got to play the game for the next rest of my life to fit in. So that's what we call in, in liberation theology <clears throat> the preferential option for the poor. Yep. That those on the side, all things being equal, anybody betrayed, abandoned, rejected, wounded by culture, ironically has a head start in understanding the gospel. I believe that. Absolutely. A head start. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean they all get it. And there's people who, by the grace of God, like um, I've lived a rather comfortable life, but God put me in situations in third world countries, in the jail, mm -hmm. people who'd come to me where I heard stories that weren't white, middle class, Catholic, yeah. comfortable, yeah, and made me call my self-constructed universe into serious question. That has to happen. Let me give you, I'll give it real quick. I use this in the school. I say there are three boxes. The first box is order. The second box is disorder. The third box is reorder, all right? Conservatives get trapped in the first box. Yep. Keep constructing an artificial order. Order at all costs. That has little to do with truth or reality or anybody else. They can't see that, though, because their need for order is so desperate. 
Liberals, progressives, academics get trapped in the second box of disorder. Hmm? Take it all apart. Yeah, deconstruct it's it. just deconstruct, deconstruct, deconstruct. And unfortunately, you know this as parents. Kids who've been formed in the postmodern era are almost born. Now, this deserves an hour of talk. I won't give it. Yeah. Uh, are almost born in the second box. That's why it's hard to be a parent today. And you know that better than I. They're born in the box of disorder. I wasn't. I was raised in Kansas. Yeah. Everything was ordered. It's a much easier way to grow up. You were raised evangelical. Much easier way to grow up. Uh, but you got a paper bag that you got to beat your way out of. Now, a lot of people don't. <laughs> it's more than a paper bag. It's a cardboard box or a wooden box. And I, I had to do the same. Now, here's the thing, and I'll stop on this metaphor. There is no, no nonstop flight from the first box to the third box. Right. And that's what people want, especially limousine liberals and comfortable. I'm enlightened because I went to a workshop on enlightenment. But I never had to face disorder in myself in my culture, in my church, and let my little, what Thomas Merton called, my private salvation project fall apart. Because that's what it is. It's a self-created private salvation project that you just happen to be the hero of, you know? <laughs> you just happen to be center stage. That must disappoint you or you don't grow up. Now, mm. we were taught that by the Jewish prophets, that the Jewish prophets railed against the priesthood, against the kings, against Jewish religion. And I always say it is forever to the glory of the Jewish people that they had the courage to incorporate into their sacred texts Bibles that told them, forgive me, they're full of shit. Yep. The capacity- Christians haven't done that very well at all. <laughs> yeah. And, and we just made the prophets into people who foretold Jesus, not truth speakers. But right. their only function, <clears throat> I mean, that's maybe one and a half percent right, right, of right, the prophetic right. message is foretelling Jesus. Come on. That's dishonest with the text. Correct. You read the text, and what they're doing is critiquing Israel every step of the way. And, and <clears throat> that one of the uniqueness, even in human history, of the Bible is its capacity for self-critique. That's right. That usually that's right. history is told by the that's, conquering that's right. gods. That's right. Like we conquered the name of such and such god. Uh-huh. Here's how we won. <laughs> but a record of a people saying, here's how we screwed it up. Yep. And then here's how we screwed yeah. it up. And then later, that king had a son and he was an idiot <laughs> and screwed it up. Yeah. Is a unique in yeah. human history. Is there a good king in the Old Testament? Is there a David? If there is, David. his son isn't. Oh, okay. You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. Now, yeah, so yeah. and so became king, and he wasn't as wise as his father. Uh, as his father, yeah. Which is yeah. essentially, it, it went okay for a while, but then the new regime. It never lasts. Yeah. You know, it's interesting you're talking about path of descent. Uh, with Jesus, there's this great line. He asks, the religious leaders ask for a sign, asks for a sign, and he has this. I picture him yelling it. The only sign you'll oh, get sign is the of sign Jonah. of Jonah, <laughs> which is essentially this beautiful picture of three days dead. Yeah. Um, yep. 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 You really, you want you want fireworks. You want party tricks. You want to see great things that will inflate your sense of self and importance. No, nope, the only thing you're going to get is you must go into the belly of the yes. beast. Uh, yes. Uh, we call it in the creed the descent into hell, 
It didn't mean our yeah. understanding of hell at all. It meant to go the distance, yeah. to go to the bottom. Yeah. You know, uh, when <clears throat> I, uh, Kristen and I and some friends started a church, we were 28, and probably three years in, probably 31 years old, 32 years old, a group of people in the church got together to have me removed. Oh, yeah. As the pastor of the church I started. Yes. Um, and then from there, there seemed to always be some group of people uh, out for me. And yeah. I, I would start going places. There would be protesters out front. Mm. Um, so when my book Love Wins came out, it was about 10 years in. It was about a decade. Really, of, was it? There was always somebody saying, Yeah. You don't belong. Yeah. You're not part of the thing. Mm-hmm. You're not worthy enough. Like there was always, and so in my early 30s, it was like, wait, I'm I'm trying to help here. Why are these people so passionately elate against me? Um, and it took me down into depths. I'm sure. I'm sure. Which at some level, it was disorder on an. Mm-hmm. On a massive scale, mm-hmm. yes. Um, yeah, that would and I, and and Kristen had her own path. Ours was joined, but had her own. Um, it somehow we we were down in the belly of the beast. Yeah, but what was so be. interesting in this very high profile religious setting, yeah. where all these people are watching <clears throat> you, but it somehow I know what you're talking about in this sixth. Um, theme it somehow brought about some oh this is how it works Mm -hmm. and you emerge you emerge with a joy and the thing that would have killed you you're fine Mm -hmm. and so the next time that comes around you ever so gradually you can laugh in its face because you know 10 years ago you would have you would, I would have had sleepless nights over you, and now I laugh. Now, yeah, that's the resurrected life. That's yeah. Jesus returning through locked doors and saying shalom. He doesn't right, even bring right, up right. what they did to him, that they betrayed him. And he doesn't even appear to need to. It's wonderful. And it was actually in, in some of your writings that I was able to, uh, um, and in falling, falling Upwards... I began to realize there was language for this and that maybe perhaps because of some of the more unusual circumstances of my work and, and what happened to us, I, I bumped into it earlier. Um, but that that's what it was. Oh, there's good. People have talked, people have been through this. You're not alone. Once again, you're not alone. (laughs) You know, a word I used several times yesterday here at the church in Pasadena was, um, what we were given was largely, transactional religion yes. not transformational yes and i'm just finding people love that juxtaposition of words it was all transactions yes. not transformational of consciousness or personhood you didn't need to face your shadow you you just got on the elevator and tried to prove that you were moral and right. ethical right. and dogmatic right. Right. and orthodox it's all about you yes. and that we couldn't see that is just astounding. But uh, I think that's a simple reason why organized Christianity just doesn't have a lot of authority today because it hasn't done its job of yes. transforming people. Yes. Yeah. And I, I've, always, I, I've used that same word transaction, and for many people... Do you? Do you? Uh, uh-huh. 
the transaction was somebody somewhere did something for you, so you're supposed to be really grateful about it, and somehow that's supposed to change your heart and your life, <laughs> which is very different from everything you've ever been searching for you've had the whole time. Mm-hmm. Jesus in the parable of the prodigal son, mm. the words he puts on the God character are, you are always with me, you're always and everything me. I have is yours. Uh-huh. And then you just rest in that. There's you no, rest in There's that. no competition. Okay, one more. Is it oh. one more? Is it already over? (laughs) Seven. Goal. The goal, okay. Reality is paradoxical Mm. and complementary. Non-dual thinking is the highest level of consciousness. Divine union, not private perfection, is the goal of all religion. Mm. Okay, Uh, how do we unpackage that? It's Now, when I wrote my book, The Naked Now, I wrote it with some trepidation because I was trying to introduce that term non-dual to Western Christianity. And I knew it was a word that most Christians associate with Buddhism, Hinduism, Taoism, and therefore we'd immediately mistrust it. Although if it's true... There you go. If it's it's true, it's true, it's true. Christians don't have to use it. Our statement of it, at least in Catholic theology, we said the three stages of the spiritual journey were the purgative way, the illuminative way, and the unitive way. So instead of saying non-dual, our term was unitive. But we were pointing to the same reality. When you don't put everything in oppositional pairs. Now, this is the way the mind prefers to look to read reality. We don't know why, but it loves to think that it's smart because it can choose between Republican and Democrat and take sides on one or the other. It's amazing that you really think you've achieved absolute truth because you're a Republican or a Democrat and you were given choice, pro-choice in this case. Uh, And it's a huge delusion. Now, talking about Trinity again, I think the the law of three was made to order, made to order, the doctrine of the Trinity was made to order to undercut and to make impossible dualistic thinking. Because if you understand God is not one, but not three, now normally that's gobbledygook, you understand? You're, you're playing with me now. You're, well, that's what we asserted, didn't we? Yeah. Yes. God was not one or not three. Without a mystical, non-dual mind that can say, it's a paradox. They're both true at the same time. That's called, by the way, the first philosophical problem, the problem of the one and the many. For us, it was resolved in the doctrine of the Trinity that you can have unity out of diversity. God is not one, but God is not two either. God is three. (laughs) Now that flow between the three becomes the template for the whole universe. Just Google, and you've done it, I'm sure, or seen it, any picture of an atom that you've ever seen. And it's three particles cycling around one another. And you go back to Genesis, and what does it say? It's rather shocking that the Jewish people allowed this even. I guess we thought Yahweh was using the royal we. Let us create in our image. Yes. 
Let us Aquinas is early let, on, and the but now we are the first century to know that in fact the basic building block of everything in the physical universe is proton and electron and neutron. I don't know which is father, which is son, which is the Holy Spirit, but we have this union. dynamic interaction of communal energy yeah, in relationship. Yeah. And then, you know, when I live in New Mexico and when the first bomb was dropped there, Robert Oppenheimer, the, uh, the German scientist who was the head of the, the project, do you know, he called the project the Trinity Project. Hmm? No way. And it's called Trinity Site. It's still there in southern New Mexico. huh? The final stage of the creating of the bomb was the, he was a very literate man. He quotes the Bhagavad Gita, in fact, when the bomb drops. But he was highly influenced by the metaphysical poetry of John Donne, the English Trinitarian poet. And he saw, it seems, from the poems he later quotes from John Donne, he called it Trinity, Trinity Project and Trinity Site, because we were undoing the Trinity by exploding the atom. Do you understand? And that's why he quoted the Bhagavad Gita. I have become death. We, to undo the Trinity is to release death. You the undo world. the three, it'll lead to destruction in some yeah. form or another. Yes. So you move to a dualistic, we're right, they're yeah, wrong. Everything's we're Americans, now framed. they're not. We're patriotic, they're mm. not. Our We're violence Orthodox, is good violence. Their violence is bad violence. Bad violence. violence. Yeah, yeah. Any of those dualities where we've created two and we're on the good side, they're on the bad yeah. side, you have undone the three and it will always You've lead to the destruction. The, the law of three is always dynamic, always flowing. It doesn't <sighs> let you get oppositional. It keeps you. This I, I bet you know this is parents. If you would have never, you have had three kids, right? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> three kids. But... <laughs> Obviously. (laughs) (laughs) Your little trinity. Uh, I don't want to speak for all marriages because I know many marriages that haven't been able to have children and are Mm -hmm. quite healthy people. But they always found some love object outside of the two of them. Or their love became very stale, very narcissistic, very... How many fantastic vacations can you go on as a couple, you know? But God brought into your life these three little ones that you love. And that's how life proceeds in a dynamic way. You have to introduce the third. And without the third, all of the world is oppositional. It never moves to a higher level. So the the dynamism of the three creates a fourth. when, When the book on the Trinity comes out, I'm sure you're familiar with that is it 14th century Andre Rublev icon? It's my favorite piece of religious art where you have the three persons sitting at a table. It's the, the three angels of Abraham, but it's also the, the three persons of the Trinity. What we discovered, you're going to love this. Look it up next time you go online. You'll, you'll see the picture. It's still in a museum in Moscow. But on the front of the table... It's a round table around which the three persons of the Trinity are seated. There's a little blank spot. And recent scientists scraped what was there, and they found out it was glue. Now, this breaks all the rules of iconography. But we're almost certain that there was a mirror glued 
so that you, the watcher, became the fourth person at the table. That's Trinitarian theology. Yeah, that's it. That's we are invited into the table, into the perichoresis, into the dance. Into you the dance. see, that makes salvation something so much different than a contest, at, right. <laughs> which well, hardly you anybody worry about wins. whether or not you have it. Yeah, yeah. And I'm not worthy enough. I'm sinful. You know, it's good stuff. Uh, this I can die after I write this book because. It's, there's nothing more to say. If you get the Trinity right, you've reformed, you've reformed Christianity. Not, I'm saying that my book will do that, but you've reformed Christianity from the bottom up. It rearranges everything. The meaning of incarnation, the meaning of, of, of salvation, the meaning of the cosmic Christ. Now it's a cosmic religion. It's not a tribal religion anymore. It's it's a statement about reality. Like my Easter Sunday sermon a few weeks ago, I said the, the raising up of Jesus, and that's the correct way to say it, is not a one-time anomaly that proves that Jesus is God, but it's a statement about how reality works. <laughs> and he is the final chapter of reality given to us to give history hope. This is where it's all heading, you know, to the risen Christ, to the omega point of history, as the book of Revelation says. Unless we give that hope back to history, I don't see any way that the Christian religion will be the hope of the world or Jesus will be the savior of the world. As long as we remain at this tribal, competitive dualistic, so I'm back to all of life is paradox. God is a paradox, and he engenders in you, in a true believer, a patience with mystery, that Mm. God will always be mystery. God will always be things that I do not yet understand. Mm -hmm. But God holds me so tightly and so gently that I don't need to understand everything. That's faith. That's biblical faith. I don't need to understand everything. I can be comfortable in this world without having an explanation for everything. What else would faith mean? Uh, What what else would faith mean? You mentioned paradoxical, but also complementary. Okay. What do you mean by complementary? Yeah, that um, what you see, you know, it's the different levels of touching the elephant. That or the different anagram numbers, that we all have temperamental preferences by mm-hmm. reason of our personality, by reason of our culture, to see things from this angle or at that angle. Now, when we have the humility to recognize that another culture doesn't have to be seen as they're wrong and I'm right, but in fact, they offer me something and I offer them something. I know that sounds like a cliche, but it's true. Right. <laughs> when you can start seeing the complementarity of, of opposites, instead of magnifying the oppositional energy, let me put it straightforwardly, and you would understand this, I don't think you'll ever be happy. I don't think you'll ever be happy. Because you just get upset at all the contradictory damn things in this world that don't make <laughs> a bit of sense, you know? Yes. You just, there's hardly any of it is logical. 
hardly, I mean, I just turned 73. And I visit people in hospitals your age, in their 40s, who are already going to die. I said, this isn't fair. Right. (laughs) This isn't right. Right. Why should this mother who has three children? And and if you can't deal with paradox and mystery, you're going to be an angry person. And isn't this election proving that we have a lot of angry Christians who've been trained in my job is to make everything right and to exclude the problems. Boy, this is done a number on us. And yeah. the, the most visible form of that is anal, retentive, judgmental, angry Christians. And they seem to be everywhere. And I'm still a Christian, so I'm, I'm one of them too. But, but we're changing it. <laughs> we hope we are, yeah. Well, you are for sure. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, uh, that that's is, more. Are you than sure enough. there's not an eighth or a ninth or a tenth? <laughs> no, that's enough. This, oh, that's uh, because you're ready word. for it. You understand it. You live it already. Hungry. You can only thirsty. talk to people who already partially know it. You know that. That's yeah. Yeah, Kristen always says you can't take people where they don't want to go. Yeah, no, you can't. Yeah. Can. Um, those of you listening, Center for Action and Contemplation is where Richard is sort of headquartered in New Mexico, cac.org. Um, Naked Now, Soon, The Perichoresis of God, is that what it's called? The Divine Dance. The Divine Dance. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Is Richard's new book. The Trinity and Your Transformation is the subtitle. <sighs> when does it come out? In October. Okay. And uh, the author of The Shack is going to write the foreword. God yes. bless him. Yeah. So I'm thinking that we'll do another podcast then. Yeah. Specifically about that book. Maybe. We'll look for a chance. And we'll fix okay. it by then. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> this, seriously, for Kirsten and I, you've oh, meant so much to us. Well, you make me very happy. Thank you. Thank um, you. And this was just pure joy. Yeah. Well, it was joy for me. And to all of you, somewhere I'm sure at, you can get oh, these things God. written out. Um, these the seven themes we just discussed. Uh, I'll make them available somehow. Oh, and they're on the website. Too. Oh, they're on this. Yeah, uh, they're CAC. on the website. Great. Mm, yeah. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you, Rob. Thank you. Thank you, and Kirsten. Thank you. Grace and peace, everyone.